हेलो एवरीवन एंड वेलकम टू अवंतिका डिजाइनरिंग सीरीज और एडीएस एस वी लाइक टू कॉल इट एवरी वीक ऑन वेडनेसडे वी फीचर डिजाइन एंड टेक्नोलॉजी लीडर्स हु शेयर द प्रोफेशनल जर्नी दर थॉट्स ऑन द डोमेन ऑफ वर्क एंड डिजाइनरिंग वेयर द वर्ल्ड ऑफ डिजाइन एंड इंजीनियरिंग मीट मेक श्योर यू फॉलोअर्स ऑन सोशल मीडिया इंस्टाग्राम लिंकड इन फेसबुक एंड ट्विटर एंड विद दैट लेट्स कंटिन्यू विद योर शो Design thinking is a deeply human-centered process that taps into abilities we all have but gets overlooked by more conventional problem-solving practices. So what if the problem which we are solving is not the actual problem to be solved? Design thinking requires an experimental, collaborative and optimistic design mindset. The question that comes into the picture now is how can we develop the design mindset and that is why in this episode we interact with an inspirational expert in design mindset chris do founder and ceo at the future he is also the chairman and board of director at the society for the promotion of the japanese animations he has run an emmy award winning motion design brand consultancy for over 23 years he has successfully taught numerous people to make a living doing what they love by training them in becoming bilingual when it comes to business without wasting any further time let us get into conversation with him on this special episode on the international podcast day on how he has witnessed designering shape up in his professional experience Hello Chris welcome to Avantika Designering series it's it's an honor to host you on our show thank you very much for having me so chris you know from getting trained in graphic design being an entrepreneur to being a thought leader today in the world of design and communication run us through your entire journey i mean how 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 do you how how did you plan all of this well my journey began uh, in a very traditional fashion i went to a private art school and i studied at the arts uh at art center college of design and got a degree a bachelor's of arts in graphic design and once i graduated i had an opportunity to work briefly for a couple of different companies and then ultimately i decided i want to start my own company this was in december of 1995 which i founded my first company called blind and we we quickly shifted from doing traditional graphic design to motion graphics and it was a brand new industry new field in terms of being able to animate and create characters on desktop and we were just riding that very first wave of motion designers and we were very fortunate to be there at the right place at the right time and i've been running that company uh, for 20 plus years now we've had the good fortune of making commercials and music videos for some of the biggest bands and brands in the world and now Uh, I I've leveraged experience of teaching and running a company into my second company which is called The Future and I use social platforms like YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook to teach other people the business of design and that company was started in 2016. Well, wow, that's interesting. So that brings me to an interesting question Chris is having worked in multiple design domains uh could you share your views on having 
a non-linear career path and how does that help in reinforcing people's broader skill sets yeah i think we're living in a time of really rapid change uh, there's there's an expression here that i i, I want to share with you to kind of get this all in context is uh, it's never been as fast as it's been up to this point like if you look back the rate of change has never been faster than right now with adoption of technologies and the ways that we're living and working and sharing experiences with one another but looking forward this will also simultaneously be the slowest point that it's ever going to be so 10 years from now you're going to look back and say wow i like the good old slow days so it's time of great change. So what we have to do is when we go to school and we prepare ourselves, the best thing that we can do is prepare ourselves for change and adapt and to remain curious and not to say like, I went to school and studied X. I'm going to do that thing for a really long time. So Chris, you've always advocated for design and business, and it's a boon to possess both left and right brain skills. Could you emphasize more on how did you develop those skills the quantitative skills the creative skills empathetic skills to name some of them yeah uh, this that's an interesting question uh, i i come from a family that's quite div- divided in who we are and if i look at my parents my dad and all his brothers and sisters they're all in the silicon valley doing very technical things engineering computer science that kind of thing very um, left brain and then on the right side, I mean, uh, on the creative side, there's my mom and her many siblings, and they're all creative people. Uh, my mom did work in a technical field, but she's an artist. She paints and she paints with oils and pastels. Her sister's a singer. Her younger brother is an artist. Her, her other brother is an inventor. And so we have kind of very polar opposites of DNA here because between my mom and my dad, there's the creative and then there's the logic. The logic said, let's get the business done. Let's do something conservative. Let's put in the work and let's not have these flights of fancy. Whereas on the other side, the creative side, they're all dreamers and they, they're wonderful human beings and they think of incredible ideas. The problem has been without the business discipline, they've not been terribly successful as creative people. I forgot, they're also poets and photographers. And so it's kind of this eclectic mix that my mom's family comes from. I look at myself as a person that's right in between those two people. I grew up thinking I was going to work in the engineering and computer science space. I took an aptitude test in high school. That's what it told me I should do. In the meanwhile, all throughout growing up, I had a a particular draw and fascination with art and creating things. So I was working with an airbrush and making models and building things with my hands. And I couldn't wrestle the differences until I started to find design. And, and to bring it back to the side of business. So I didn't want to be a starving artist. I didn't want to be one of those people who were living paycheck to paycheck. And so that entrepreneurial spirit, the desire to build more than what I am capable of producing on my own was in there from, from the very start. The thing that I try to share with creative people from all walks of life is to start to learn to speak the language of business because ultimately it's business people who hire you. And so if you're speaking Spanish and they're speaking English, it's not going to go very well for you since they're the ones who hold the keys to your financial future. So rather than have them speak the language of art, which is this fantasy that creative people have, I I wish uh, my client could tell me what they wanted. That's a fantasy. The reality is learn to speak the language of business and to speak about the things that they care about 
and then translate that through your beautiful creative brain and then tell them based on what you shared with me, objectively speaking, it should be like this and this will get you that result. So if they can do that, they're going to have a lot more success. Absolutely. I couldn't agree to you more. In fact, uh, a lot of times things go haywire because these uh, these languages are not understood. These briefs are not understood. And and that uh, lands up creating a lot of chaos. So, mm-hmm. you know, with, with you sharing your journey, Chris, one of the things that I wish to know is after continuously accomplishing so many feats in your career, how do you keep challenging yourself? Great question. I, I don't look at them necessarily as great accomplishments. I just look at it as milestones in growth. So when you do something and you get good at it, eventually your your curiosity starts to wander and you start to look for other things. Now, I knew this, and, and this is strange for me to say, but while I was going to Art Center and studying design, I started to grow pretty fast. Like once I got introduced to typography, I felt like the keys to the design universe were given to me and they could be unlocked. Any door, any problem, any challenge, I could use this magical key and open these doors. And so towards the end of my schooling in those four years, I started to get bored. So I, I, I took classes in animation, 3D modeling, and this was pretty cutting edge stuff back in the day with computers that were way more expensive than I could ever afford to buy. But that set the groundwork for what I ultimately was going to do. When I chose to do motion design, this is a very interesting discipline because it incorporates so many other disciplines underneath it. So motion design, for people who are unfamiliar with it, is essentially using all the principles of graphic design, cinematography, editing, animation, photography, visual effects, and bringing it all together to create this moving piece. So all those skills need to be mastered to be able to have something that's rich and textured and beautiful and tells a story. And I knew that you could spend a lifetime trying to learn each one of these separate disciplines to bring them together to motion design and still not run out of things to learn. So that really excited me as a creative human being. So that's why I spent a good part of two decades learning how to direct, how to edit, how to tell stories, and bring that graphic design eye to those stories. In fact, not only a storyteller, you sound more like a poet to me because you are connecting the dots in your life so seamlessly, so beautifully, um, and expressing them that, 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 that that's really getting interesting. <laughs> So, Chris, you have a powerful brand presence across various platforms. Could you share your growth story and how did you work your way in personal branding while also being the face of future and blind agency? Very good question. Uh, I'm, for most of my life, grew up very shy, very introverted. I had difficulties looking at people in the eye as a teenager. I, I kept my mouth shut most of the time and, and would, would be very reluctant to speak up in class, even if I knew the answer. Uh, to, to make this case in, uh, or to make a case for this, let me share with you in junior high, my teacher asked all the students to line up around the edges of the room. So one by one, we stood shoulder to shoulder and we started going around in a circle and he was asking us how to spell certain words. And if you got it wrong, you would go and sit down. And he went around and around. And of course, I got everyone right. And it came down to me and one other person. And I didn't like the attention of all these eyeballs of my fellow classmates looking at me. So the next word came up, I got it. And the last person to stand with me got it wrong. So they sat down. So then he said, you should be the one to go to the spelling bee and represent our class. And I begged him, I said, I do not want to do this. Please don't make me do this. He said, I can't make you do this. So we will pick number two to go instead. 
That's how much fear I had of getting attention. And I grew up struggling with this. And so now I tell you that because that sets the foundation for what I'm about to tell you. So although I thought I was good at design, I was confident in the design space, I was not comfortable talking to people and managing teams. These are things I needed to learn and it took a while to learn. So even though I had business success, I still struggled with dealing with clients and being in, in public eye. So with the help of a, of a business coach that I worked with for the course of over 10 years, I started to slowly improve my communication skills, my management skills, my business skills. And ultimately, he challenged me to get out there and be in front of the clients. And he gave me tools and a way to do it that didn't scare the bejesus out of me. He had the, the, my, my staff, my team support me and be able to pull me into meetings and gracefully pull me out because I didn't even know how to enter and exit conversations. And that was part of my fear. So the next challenge he gave to me was go and speak. People need to hear what you have to say. You're a gifted teacher. You're super passionate and you've done really beautiful work. Don't deny other people of that knowledge. And so I volunteered to speak and I bombed the first couple of times. My voice was shaky. My notes were messed up and I just wanted to run for the door. Thankfully, I didn't. And each time I would talk to him, he would give me a little bit of advice. I would go back at it and not quit with bruises and scrapes and all and go back at it and do it again. And each time I got, I would say like 2% better, not 20%, but 2%. And just to share with you, my heart pounds wildly before I step onto that stage. I start gulping air and then and then I have to like, um, to to burp and let the air out because I'm, I'm hyperventilating and it just takes a long time to develop those skills. Now let's jump forward to us making videos and developing this personal brand because that's not, not until I started doing videos on YouTube, did people start to see who I was and to recognize the things that we were saying. The big breakthrough that we had was when we stopped making videos, trying to sell products and we just tried to teach. Now, this was my comfort zone because at this point in time, I was already teaching for 15 years at Art Center and other schools. So I knew I could do this. I just had to learn how to do it in front of a camera. And for those of you that have never been in front of a camera, it is paralyzing to stare at a piece of glass, knowing that every word, every facial tick, every expression, every imperfection and flaw that you feel about yourself is being captured and recorded for all of eternity for everyone to share and to critique. And that is paralyzing. So each one of these moments is, is the, the tide pushing against your body. And if you stand firm, if you adapt and, and you learn to work with the tide, it won't push you into the shore, but you can actually keep progressing into deeper waters. And that's all it is. Everybody looks at it from their point and they look at people who are successful and in the public eye and they're scared to start because it's a really big jump from where you are and where you want to be. My advice to them is just look at the next step. Take that step. The next biggest challenge that's in front of you, go do that. And just make sure you're pointed in the direction that you want to head in. And sooner or later, you'll be exactly where you thought you'd never be. Hey, this is crazy. The future has more than 885,000 subscribers on YouTube. 12,000 course graduates, 700 plus videos, and 20 plus courses and products.
Wow, Chris, this is so candid. This is uh, this speaking uh, your heart out, and I'm sure uh, that there's so much for our listeners to learn from this. I mean, I could relate to every uh, incidents that you were speaking about. Wow, it's truly an experience uh, doing this conversation with you. But well, mm-hmm. let's move ahead to our next question. And um, Elon Musk, in fact, mentioned that solving hardware problems. you know with a software mindset works you're an expert in design mindset what exactly do you mean by that concept and how does one develop a design mindset yes i think um i'm going to share something that my friend brian shared with me is like we're we're really focused too heavily on being problem solvers and he said that we have to as designers be problem seekers and i thought that he was being clever with words and just trying to twist things around and i didn't fully understand it when he first said it to me this is brian collins of collins agency world famous uh declared one of the greatest designers um sharing this information with me and i was like what does it mean to be a problem seeker so let me see if i can expand on what i think he meant being a problem solver you're waiting for somebody to share a problem with you and then you solve it So a client can come to you and say I have a website, I have a problem to solve. You get you said great. Okay, I know UX and UI, I know some back-end development, front-end development. I can go and do this for you. And that's fine and that's how most designers are trained to think. And it's actually something that we say quite proudly, I'm a problem solver. His thing is, what if the problem that's presented to you is the wrong problem? You've now built an elegant solution for the wrong problem. So we need to go to the next level and this is why I love talking to Brian is because he's such a next level thinker is for us to say client I understand this is the problem that you say but if you if you can spend a minute with me and we can talk about why you have this problem in the first place you might find out that the root cause of it is something totally different and in Brian's example he loves to share the story of Beowulf and he's like they they hired Beowulf to slay uh the Grendel And Beowulf is a as as a warrior and his band of freelancers they go in and they slay slay Grendel and the in the town rejoices and everything is great. But what they didn't realize that Grendel had a mother and she was pissed. So they just solved one problem and then if they just stopped there and didn't realize there was even a bigger problem. And that's what he's talking about. So you as a creative person can use a certain kind of design thinking methodologies to examine problems deeper. The first question you should be asking yourself is what is the real problem? What's the real challenge here? And oftentimes the first one is the incorrect challenge, and so your job is to find the right problem. And once you find that, you you then ask yourself, generally speaking, what would we consider the goal or the outcome that we want? Now that we have a clear understanding of the problem, the challenge, and the goal, we start to use our thinking and say, do we know the steps that we have to take to get to the solution, to the outcome that we want? And if we don't possess those skills, and oftentimes we will not, we need to enlist individuals to ask them about specific steps to consult and advise with them so that they can share with us how to get from point A to B to C to D before we can get to where we want to go. And if you have the um presence and state of mind to see the problem clearly like that and to step out of the way to say that you have to come up with all the solutions then you're going to get to that solution faster than you think that requires a level of maturity and level-headedness and clear thinking 
that scientists seem to possess. And, and we as creative people can learn a lot from that. Wow, interesting. And and I think it's it's fascinating to have a mindset like this and, and be able to think. In fact, uh, the future of design is shifting to social practice, a shift away from a society focused on aesthetics and tangible outputs rather than process of design itself and its impact on social practice. My question to you, Chris, is what's your view on this new mindset, the the new mindset of social practice? Mm, okay, I think I understand what you're asking. And if, if I don't give you the answer that you want, uh, just redirect me and I'll, I'll see if I can answer that question better, okay? I, I think it's a pretty um, short-sighted for creative people to focus on aesthetics. And unfortunately, if you pay attention to design Twitter or design on social media, it's what we tend to obsess with. It's what gets the most engagement. To put it, to kind of clarify, if you look at the way that designers respond to a new logo when a company that they love goes through a rebrand, it is a visceral reaction that they're having to something that they don't like. They're not looking at it objectively. They don't care to dig into the business objectives that are being resolved. They don't understand the bigger picture. And all they can do is say, this is ugly. And I think this kind of mindset, this fervor that designers get worked up into uh, is an indication of where our energies uh, are spent and what matters to us as creative people. I think this is a disservice to designers who are trying to think bigger because we all get lumped together. So I think it's a conversation that we have to have at every level, starting from probably the moment when you start thinking about, I'd like to have a career in design. And that the teachers who are teaching these concepts need to step back themselves and say, what is my role in an impact and shaping these future thought leaders? Are we asking them to consider the broader perspective? Now, I, I'm saying that in a very broad sense because I know that there are design programs and classes and teachers who are trying to use design to solve social problems, to solve cultural problems, to, to solve communication problems. And design... I think in its purest definition, has nothing to do with aesthetics. Creativity has nothing necessarily to do with aesthetics. It's about moving from an existing situation to a preferred situation or a condition. So if you have something like social injustice or poverty or clean water, that's an existing condition. Well, what's the preferred condition? That we all have a livable wage, that we all have basic needs and services met like healthcare and, and clean water and clean air so that we can, to, can can live a healthy life and to raise our children. Those should just be the basic parts of all societies. So we as creative people need to have a more mature adult conversation with what is it that we're applying our, our, our God-given energy and creativity, our gift? What are we really trying to solve? And if we're sitting here debating about the roundness of a typeface, I think we've lost the war. Well, absolutely uh, well put across. I think uh, designing uh, for a better world, designing for uh, uh, for 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 the betterment of of our race. I think that's that's an important conversation. Uh, and I see more and more uh, designers, corporations actually getting there. So moving, uh, Chris, uh, from the design mindset to another interesting area, an an area of your interest, which is typography. My question is, 
uh, inspired by the latest uh, book. It's called as the Grammar of Typography. How do you think the world of typography itself has evolved? I don't think it's evolved that much, and I prefer it not to evolve that much. Uh, typography is thinking made visual. Okay, it is thinking made visual, and the rules that the early graphic design pioneers in the Bauhaus and the, the next generation of creative uh, people, designers, have already figured this stuff out. What's happened now, and it's very interesting for me to see this, is because there are a lot, a lot of self-taught people, and I'm, I hope to be championing, uh, uh, making a case and a cause for people who are self-taught. But what they lack is that foundational knowledge. And so they go and make really bad things, things that get in the way of legibility, they get they make things just because they can with super powerful tools, right? Because the tools have been democratized, anybody basically with the internet connection can use some version of a, a web app to create something. So there's that lack of knowledge, the lack of discipline, the lack of training. And so I would prefer that everybody that wants a design at least get that foundational knowledge by any means possible so that they can then go and have an informed conversation through the things that they make. And I think that's really important. I, I think it, it, we want to step back and say, like, what are the trends? And it's there There aren't these huge arcs and trends, in my opinion. They're mostly driven by application. For example, we're spending an increasing amount of time on mobile phones and apps. And so therefore, those things tend to dictate the visual language that people become familiar with. You don't have to be a designer to know design when you use an app that's confusing, that's hard to read, where the colors clash. I think that's what's really driving it. And I think that may be the thing that feels like it's a trend, but it's just a response to a problem. And that's really all it is. So if people had spent time learning about the masters that came before them and the work that they did, the contributions that they made to our industry, and started there, they would be in a much better place today. Uh, I find it super annoying and, to, and indicative of the people who are speaking about these things. They're saying things like, oh, Helvetica is so trendy. How could something that's been around for 70 years, I think, plus, be trendy now? That's like saying my grandma's sweater is trendy. It doesn't make sense. It's because these are staples that designers have learned how to use and just because you discovered Helvetica last week and you're seeing it uh, across so many different pieces of design that you start to think that it's trendy. People say flat design is so trendy right now. Well, flat design was the only way you could design at the beginning. So what are you talking about? Wow, Chris, I'm enjoying this. I think um, in all the recordings that we've done, this is my most candid conversation uh, with a guest. So that's 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 brilliant and I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Extending Great. the question of typography. In fact, how can a brand drive quality perceptions through graphics and typography that are appropriate to its identity? So we, we see a Disney font, we see a Coca-Cola font. Uh, the question is that um, how are they appropriate to the identity of the brand? I think we need to, to have a conversation briefly about this idea of trust and how trust is gained and how perception uh, is developed over time in the mind of the consumer. The, the identity, the visual parts are just one very small aspect of it because if we picked up a can of Coke and we drank it in its exact same packaging, but from can to can, it tastes different. Sometimes it's too sugary, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's very, very fizzy and then sometimes it's not. 
well, we don't really care at this point what the logo, that script, that very signature logo looks like and the, sw the swirl. We don't care anymore. And so I think creative people tend to get a little self-important and say that the visual identity is the brand and they're thoroughly mistaken because there are very successful companies out there with the ugliest logos. Conversely, there are companies with beautiful, immaculate, amazing logos that are now bankrupt and no longer in business. I'll give you an example. One of the most famous, probably the, the most famous graphic designer that's ever lived is Paul Rand. Paul Rand designed the next logo for Steve Jobs, a soon-to-be icon of technology and innovator himself. After having left Apple, he started Next Computers. That company never made a dent in anything. Beautiful logo, designed by the most famous graphic designer that's ever lived, was not successful. Why? Because the technology was too expensive and it was underpowered. So I want you to think about that. And everybody that's not sure about this, listening to this podcast later, go walk around. Look at the products you enjoy. Look at the packaging. Is it something that would win a design award in your opinion? But yet you still prefer it. So design can only empower brands that are doing things well, that are innovative, that are consistent, and it has to be built on that foundation. Otherwise, design's not going to save anything. So let's not kid ourselves here. The design that you make has to be in connection to something that is really good. Now, what kind of design decisions can a company and a brand make with their visual identity? Well, let's talk about that. Now, I, I feel this way, but maybe it's different in different cultures. But when you show restraint, it shows confidence. If you compare Apple's design to everybody else's, you'll notice some stark differences. And if you look at most premium and luxury brands, the brands that people pay in magnitudes more than their next nearest available competitor, you ask yourself, like, why is that? Well, and what is it that they're doing? Look at the packaging from Apple. It's minimal, beautifully photographed, and it says, I'm very confident. Now, if you look at some packaging from the East, especially in Asian countries I've visited, they have 14 different typefaces, 44 different colors, horrible photography. They're trying to sell you on the package. See, Apple already knows you're, you're already an Apple customer before you even walk into the store. That's the kind of confidence that they have. So I'm going to encourage all the brands that are looking at hiring creative people, don't ask them to add more. Ask them, is this what's essential? If it's not, let's get rid of it. Hey, you will be amazed to know that Chris's work has been recognized by international organizations such as Emmy Gold, Communication Arts, London International Awards, One Show, New York Festival, and many, many more. Wow, that's, that's definitely something to think about. In fact, uh, Chris, moving from your expertise in typography to another area, uh, uh, where you hold expertise and that's pricing. So I wish to discuss how do you price a service? I mean, how do you arrive at a number and what's your creative recipe uh, for doing this? I mean, apart from uh, the theoretical concepts that we read in the book, what's your uh, suggestion 
uh, for someone to come across to, to to come up with pricing for their product or service. This is a difficult concept for people to understand. I'm going to say it and I'm going to share a story with you and hopefully it'll be a little easier to understand. The thing that you need to know is that we all have different value systems. We all have all different needs. So when you price a job and not the client, you're really focusing on you and not the client. So the the idea is always price a client and not the job. Because what you do has different impacts to different people. And let's imagine that you and I were sitting together and I pulled out a bag and I laid a bunch of rocks on the table. And I said, how much would you pay me for these rocks? Well, you look at them like nothing. Rocks are abundant. There's nothing special about these rocks. But these are very valuable rocks. I, it took me a really long time to find these rocks. And you're like, get this out of my face. You couldn't pay me to take those rocks. Okay, take us back into ancient times. And there's a situation between David and Goliath. And there's a battle that's about to brew. And, and David with his sling cannot find a rock. You take that same bag out and you're like, David, are you looking for one of these? Now, how much is that same rock worth to David? Well, in a battle and, and he can find a use for it, is extremely valuable because there's no way he could win this fight. See, so this is how we all look at things differently with our very subjective lens about what we find to be valuable. And let's keep going on this rock analogy here. I'm, I don't care for precious stones, but some people do. So a really fancy rock might be called a sapphire or an emerald or a diamond. Now, I see no value with those things because I... It's another rock. Yes, it's rare, but it's just another rock where some people will say that's worth $40,000. So when you make a logo for a company, that's your rock. Find somebody who sees value in that and sell that to them at the price that they feel is fair to them. That's the story part. So maybe we need to have a little dialogue about how else I can expand on this so that people can understand it. What do you think? Absolutely. I in 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 fact I'm I'm so intrigued that I'm I'm waiting to hear the next part of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to have this long rant. I, I do want to have a conversation with you. And the reason is no, but people then, get uh, really bent. Absolutely, but but what you're saying is so relevant. It's 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 something that 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 everyone should know, and and uh, you know I've I've just kept everything you know on on standby, and I'm I'm so hooked on to the story and and the way you are presenting. So so please please share it. <laughs> well, I, I I think creative people have a real problem with assigning value to their work because I'm going to assume they're just like me, awkward, weird. They don't want to talk about money. They'd rather just make art, and that's how they see their worth in life. And the act of talking about money, I think sometimes makes them feel like they're they're being art prostitutes. They're, they're cheapening the process that people should just pay, pay, pay a fair price magically without any involvement from us, any intervention. And there's another thing I think creative people suffer from, which is creative guilt. That what we do seems so natural to us that we do for pleasure, for joy. We would do it if nobody was paying or nobody was watching. So the idea that we can actually make money to be able to command a premium for what it is that we do so that we can provide for our family and our loved ones is a foreign concept. And it exists mostly with creative people. You don't see musicians having this problem. So when they record a song, it's to express a feeling they have, a, a broken heart, uh, a moment of joy, a point of clarity in their life. 
and they, they express this through music and through words and an arrangement. But when that album goes multi-platinum and a company comes calling and saying, can we use this song as an anthem to our event? They say, sure. And then their managers negotiate a hefty sum for this. And they don't feel bad about it necessarily. That's the way business is. And you can see this happening across almost every industry except for the ones that we're talking about in the design space. If a person gets paid a lot of money, the reaction that other designers give is, that's stupid. That's being greedy. That's overpriced. Hire somebody for $500 to do the exact same work. So there's a little kind of self-loathing going on here that we can't even be joyful for people who are successful at design and are able to command a very high price to do it. So this discomfort that we have is going to be something that is going to hinder our growth, our performance, our, our well-being in terms of our financial future until we as individuals and hopefully as a, as a group, as a community can get over this idea that you should be paid what the person feels is, is fair to them. This is really critical, but this does swing both sides. If you work with a mom and pop and you make a logo for them, the impact that that logo is going to have on their business is nominal. That same logo created for a multi-billion dollar telecom company has huge impact on their business. If they get it wrong, they lose a lot of business. Here, there's an example. I think it's for Tropicana Orange Juice. Tropicana hired a design firm to redesign the packaging because they were thinking it's outdated, needs to be updated. And in doing so, through many rounds of design, I presume, and revisions, they came up with a solution. And in, in the data in which they introduced this new package, I think arguably everybody could say that it's a superior design. They saw their sales drop off significantly because people could not find their orange juice at the supermarket. So that one design decision, I, I don't know the exact number, but it cost them millions of dollars while they lost sales until they were able to replace it back with original packaging. So that's where design has an impact. It has an impact both in good and bad ways on the bottom line. So that's why a package for Tropicana orange juice needs to be much more expensive, needs to be much more considered than your, your local mom and pop restaurant. Well, absolutely well put. I'm, I'm sure that there are so many exciting uh, such anecdotes, stories uh, from which we could pick up. But, but, but absolutely well said. I think, uh, you know, gauging that value is uh, absolutely important for a designer, for, for an entrepreneur, so that you're able to price your product, uh, uh, your service well. In fact, moving from pricing uh, to Chris, a term that uh, you know you have coined uh, called as me mail, uh, which is a part of permission marketing uh, than using the mass media interruption-based marketing philosophy. Can you share something more uh, about this with us? What do you mean by me mail? Yes, and I have to clarify, me mail is not a term I came up with. I'm not that brilliant. That was uh, a, a term I read from Seth Godin, who is one one of the smartest people I know. And what Seth says and what many copywriters and, and people who teach copywriting tell you is appeal to a person's self-interest because nobody cares about you. They don't care about you. The only thing they care about is themselves. 
So what happens in, in any kind of marketing situation, if you talk about who you are, your heritage, your company, your history, the services, if you don't tell me what's in it for me, I'm out. Because everybody is yelling at them all the time through very noisy channels and interrupting their lives by talking about themselves. Let's make this very human. If you're out at a bar and you're out there to, to connect with um, somebody that you're attracted to, uh, the first rule that you probably want to follow is stop talking about yourself. Become interested in the other person. Uh, there's a quote here. I forget who said this, but to be interesting, you must be interested. So you have to ask people questions. You have to listen intently. You have to pay attention to what it is that they're saying. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah, let's translate this now to a marketing sense, right? So that's on. See, this is where where people get this all messed up. We act one way in one set of rules. And then we act a totally different way in a different set of rules for a different group of people. And that incongruity between those two is like where things break down. Uh, there's a book title, and I love the book title. It says, sell like you buy. And I love that because people don't sell like they buy. How many of us like to get spam in our inbox? How many of us like junk mail in the mailbox? Or when we're listening to our favorite music on some streaming service that we're interrupted by an ad? How many of us are falling in love with a company that paid for that ad? I would guess very few. So this idea that Seth put out there is like, nobody wants email. They just care about me mail. What's in it for me? And if you can figure out who you're talking to and give them something they care about, they'll pay attention. Now, every day you have an opportunity. It's a classroom in your inbox. You can see who's not doing it well, and you can see who's doing it well. You can see all the files or all, all the messages that come to you where you hit delete. And then you see the ones that make you stop, to make you read it, and to click on the link. Which ones do that? Why did it work? What compelled you to take action? This is critical. What was the frequency of those messages to you? So I know one, for example. If I get an unsolicited offer from a service company or a product, I'm hitting delete. You don't know me. You're just sending out bulk email to people hoping you're going to catch something. It doesn't work. I don't want to see it. But when you're able to ask people to say, I want to give you something that's useful and helpful to you. Would you like to sign up to be marketed to in the future? And you say yes by giving them your email. That's the beginning of the permission marketing. So the very easy example to understand is in the retail space. May we send you um, exclusive drops and discounts and promotions ahead of time. Just give us your email. I do that. And if they don't abuse that trust, I will continue to receive their emails. So when they say, hey, Chris, we noticed you were looking at something through a retargeting uh, ad campaign. And we're giving you a coupon just for that one item. It expires in 48 hours. That is specifically for me using the technologies, knowing what it is that I look at and offering something very personal to me. I like that. So my next question to you, Chris, you've contributed to building communities in the field of design. My question is, what makes you do it? Uh, what's in it for you to spearhead uh, or, or manage or build a community. I really believe in this 100% with all, every fiber of my body and my being, which is the more you give, the more you get. 
It's just that simple. The more you give, the more you get. And it's part of my narrative from the beginning. When I was in school, like I had mentioned, I started to learn design at, at a pace faster than my classmates. So naturally, it would ask me to critique their work. And I first thought it was like, this is strange. We're in the same class. We're almost the same age. Yet you're coming to me to get advice outside of the class. But I would help them. And I wasn't really sure at that point in time, why am I giving up so much of my precious time not doing my own homework, helping other people. Well, as it would turn out, when I started my company, those are the same people who came back to either connect me with a client or to hire me directly. There was a young man, he was in the industrial design department, and he was a starving student, worse off than me. And he was, I didn't know it at that time, an inventor. And he drops out of school because he can't afford to go there anymore, and he creates this product. At some point in his life, he's like, you know, let me look up my friend, Chris. Oh, he's making commercials and, and videos. So he hires me to help him. And I do that. Another friend was in the film department. And she and her husband later on uh, needed help with titles for their commercials. So then they asked me to do it. And that's how we wound up working with Merrill Lynch. So in this spirit of generosity, which it really means is you give without expectations. You give wholeheartedly and you don't expect anything back. It's not a one-to-one -one translation between what you give and what you get back. I think it's in orders of magnitude greater, but it's not from the, from the places that you think. It doesn't work out like that. So you can give nine times and get nothing back from those people. And that's totally okay. And it'll be that one person who, who remembers that act of generosity, the gift that you, you gave them, and, and it sticks with people. And this whole idea of reciprocity, you give them, they want to give to you. And that's how we move forward as a society and as a culture. And that's really important, right? So I create communities because I want to share what it is that I've learned. I want to help others who are either younger or less experienced or haven't had the exposure to the kind of education, the training, and the experience that I've had. And if I can help save them some heartache to help them avoid some potential pitfalls with clients or structuring their business, I think I've done a good thing. Well, today we're supported purely by the people who felt the goodwill of us giving by either donating money to us, by buying our products, or becoming sponsors or affiliates of, of our, our program here. And, and then eventually they buy our books, the merch that we make to support us, just to say, thank you, you've helped me. And people just give money to me at random times. I think that's a wonderful way to build a society where we're helping one another. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a noble thought. And and I'm sure that there's a huge part to community building across the world. And, and that's the reason there's so many communities and all of them are thriving. In fact, uh, we're moving towards the end of our show, Chris. And, and uh, I have two more questions for you. So the first one in that is, how do you keep pace with technology change. So if we were to speak about uh, the areas of your expertise, regularly there are new fonts in marketing, content marketing is aggressively changing, the way we sell our products or services uh, are changing. How do we ensure that technology as an enabler is, is used in all aspects and, and, and we are able to keep a pace with it? I'm going to give you the philosophical answer and I'm also going to give you the super easy answer. The super easy answer is you hire young people. Young people spend a lot of time in those spaces where we're not paying attention and it, it is too much to keep up with. But the philosophical one is you have to be fluent with the language of 
relevancy. And if you you put too much energy into to, to things that are going away, you're going to find yourself out of work, out of business, and out of touch. And that's something you don't want to do. So there are new platforms popping up all the time, new ways of reaching out to customers that use technology in more nuanced and nimble ways. It's important to stay abreast of that. You could attend conferences. You could subscribe to newsletters where people spend and, and make a full-time job out of reporting on what's new and different, and you can get the high-level summaries. But I think if you're the entrepreneur, if you're the executive in your company, you obviously cannot spend all of your time or even a good portion of your time staying afloat on those things. I personally would say that doing self-development is more important than learning about the newest type typeface or the newest widget or plugin. Because at, at the end of the day, and taking it back to one of our questions earlier, where you asked me, like, what are kind of the trends of design? It's like that chasing, that trend chasing is a thing that's getting you nowhere fast. Learn the foundational stuff, put that into application, build up the experience and refine your design sensibility and have the confidence to use a lot of restraint. And that's the key. Then work with young people or experts, subject matter experts, and get them to help you with the deployment of the big idea. Well, that's that's interestingly put. And my final one, uh, Chris, your LinkedIn profile talks about business of design, which is business plus design. At Avantika University, we have a similar philosophy of blended approach, which is called as designering, where we blend design and engineering, additionally with some inputs in business. Do you think our philosophy is a relevant philosophy and and um, and it's relevant to train young talent in uh, you know with with using this philosophy? Yeah, by the description that you shared with me and the little that I know, it seems very similar. And here's the one thing that will be the test, right? The people that are teaching design nearing, I, I just hope that it's not just theoretical, that they think this is a good idea, but they've actually experienced this in their own life and their business because this is part of the problem. I'm not saying this about any school in particular or any teacher in particular, but just the general idea that what happens is you have teachers who have actually never worked in their life in a professional space. So they teach from ideal points of view, like that ivory tower, the glass house, if you will. And then they create people in their image going out into the real world and finding that cold, hard reality is very different than this, this idealized world that they've created in their mind. The reason why I think we're relevant and we have a platform and a community is because we're tapping into 20 plus years of business, business experience. We're, we're sharing the ideas that have been learned on the battlefield, not in some textbook. And that's why it's relevant. And those philosophies and those principles remain true from the beginning of business to now, meaning from the dawn in which entrepreneurs walked to earth, those same principles about learning how to deal with supply and demand, understanding your customers' needs and wants, understanding what their objections are to you, learning how to price the customer and not the thing that you make. Those things have been in existence for a really long time. All the business books that I read are basically sharing the same principles, just calling it something different and, and adapting it for the time in a language that feels more contemporary. But those principles are solid, just like the design principles have been solid for a very long time. Wow, that's beautiful. But thank you so much, Chris, for doing this. It was a pleasure hosting you on our show. And um, I'm sure that there's lots for our listeners to learn from this conversation. Thank you again for joining us. 
Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. I loved answering your questions. So thank you very much. Hey there, we hope you enjoyed our show. Do write to us on ads at the rate avantika.edu.in. We look forward to your opinions, feedbacks and suggestions of speakers you would like us to host on this show. Do tune in our channel next week on Wednesday for a new story on Hub Hopper or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you.